Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the series Diversity in Early Christianity, which focuses in on what have been traditionally called heresies and the struggles that are going on between different forms of Christianity, particularly in the second and following centuries CE. Today we continue the discussion of our evidence for Judean followers of Jesus in these centuries. In the previous episode we looked at the Ebionites that are talked about in the Church Fathers, and in this episode we focus in on the Pseudo-Clementine writings that seem to represent a particular Judean perspective, a group of Judeans who follow Jesus, who have a particular understanding of what Christianity should be, and it entails following the Jewish Torah, for example. We'll look at two main passages in this novel about Clement, the Pseudo-Clementine writings, two main passages that show us a struggle that is going on between Judean followers of Jesus, who look to Peter as their main mascot, you could say, who are seeing themselves in some sort of tension with Paul and Pauline Christianity. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. And you may also want to browse the website philipharlan.com where you can find further explanations of some of this material, including discussions of the pseudo-Clementine literature. The pseudo-Clementine literature provides us another angle on and another glimpse into Judean followers of Jesus that are being viewed negatively perhaps by other followers of Jesus in this period, including some of the church fathers. Some of what we learned about the Ebionites will come in handy in making sense of the Pseudo-Clementine literature. We'll take a look at some key passages in the Pseudo-Clementine literature that seem to preserve some of the perspectives of Judeans who follow Jesus. Not all of the Pseudo-Clementine literature does. The Pseudo-Clementine literature generally was used as orthodox literature by many people. In other words, once you have this concept of orthodoxy and the winners are there, still people are using the pseudo-Clementine literature without realizing the tensions that are in the material itself. So it's in certain segments of it that we get glances into Judean Christians. But let me just reintroduce the pseudo-Clementine literature to you. In terms of genre, the pseudo-Clementine literature is novelistic. The closest thing we have to the sort of genre we have with these writings is the novel, the Greek novel, which is usually a story of key characters that are separated from one another, that go on adventures, and ultimately are reunited at the end of the story. Basically, this writing is a novel about Clement and Clement's adventures in relation to his family, and along the way he meets up with a guy named Peter and Peter converts him to Christianity, and so it follows Clement's adventures along with Peter. And so in the section we're going to look at today, it's part of Peter's preachings being related as a story, and debates with this figure, Simon Magus, we're going to get into. And Clement is accompanying Peter in this whole thing. That's how that gets built into the story in that way. But basically it's a story of a family that's separated from one another, And then ultimately Clement is left alone in Rome with his family elsewhere and he doesn't know where they are. He's a youthful guy, he's in his early teens and he starts to seek out what he considers to be truth. And he struggles and travels around and struggles with the different options that philosophy gives him and ends up feeling frustrated. Ultimately he hears about stories of this figure Jesus who's executed in, in Judea 
and then meets up with Peter, who is a follower of that Jesus, and then converts to Christianity and views this as the final solution to all the struggles he ever had. And then we get uh, him following Peter in the debates with Simon Magus. So that's how the storyline goes. The writings that we call the pseudo-Clementine literature consist of the homilies and the recognitions. These are the two main versions of the story of Clement that we have. Both of them date to before 410 CE. Most scholars suggest that there were sources that were used by both of these alternate stories of Clement and that the sources that they were using go back even earlier, obviously. And so some scholars like Strecker have attempted to try and reconstruct what they feel was the grounding document, was the document upon which both the recognitions and the homilies was based. And they try and date it and etc. But this whole source critical analysis that is involved in this is not a secure process, so to speak. And we can't be too definite about what you can reconstruct about before a document exists. But it's worth at least mentioning that People like Strecker who have this theory that there was an earlier document would date that document to the 200 CE, along with the recognitions at least in the form we have them, are several letters, one of which we're reading today, a letter from Peter to James. Now as to how the pseudo-Clementine writings have been used for this question of diversity in early Christianity, F.C. Bauer is among the first scholars, remember he's the guy we read about in the 1800s, a German scholar who had this thoroughgoing theory that all of early Christianity can be explained in terms of two parties, two fighting parties, two antagonistic parties, the Petrine form of Christianity, the Judean form, and the Pauline form, the Gentile form of Christianity. And remember, F.C. Bauer has a very thoroughgoing theory and then explains all of early Christianity in those two camps. We already problematized that and talked about the fact that things are far more complex than that. There's some truth, though, in what F.C. Bauer said, and we've noticed that even in looking at Galatians and things like that. But when F.C. Bauer constructed this theory, the pseudo-Clementine writings were instrumental to his view. He found in them great ammunition for this view that there was an ongoing struggle between Petrine and Pauline Christianity. And he saw the pseudo-Clementines as representing Petrine, Judean, forms of Christianity over against Pauline Christianity. Now, we'll soon see that there's some truth in that overall characterization. But what is difficult about how F.C. Bauer approached it was he thought that everything he found in the pseudo-Clementines fit into this whole battle that he was trying to sketch out. Whereas today we'll be looking at what scholars now consider the most secure materials for looking at Judean perspectives in the pseudo-Clementines, but that the pseudo-Clementines in general were used by all kinds of people and contain all kinds of views, sometimes inconsistent with the views in the sections we're going to look at. So it's not a clear cut. The pseudo-Clementines are all anti-Paul and all representative of Judean Christianity. That's too simplified. And that's more along the lines of what F.C. Bauer thought, that simplified view. The three main areas that are useful in the pseudo-Clementines and the most secure materials for looking at Judean forms of Christianity are two of the ones you read for today. The Epistle of Peter to James, that we're going to analyze briefly, and Homily 17, which tells the story of Peter having a debate with Simon Magus. The third main section that we're, you guys didn't read but that uh, scholars have recently spent quite a bit of uh, attention on this, 
is Recognition's Book One, which is actually considered by some scholars to be an apology for Judean believers. It's almost like an alternate version of the Acts of the Apostles in which there's a defense of Judean followers of Jesus uh, in the process of telling the history of the Israelites and the history of the early church. So you guys didn't read that one, but that's a third one that is somewhat secure in giving us perspectives on Judeans. Let's look briefly at the two that you did read. The first one is the epistle of Peter to James I want to talk a little bit about. This is what prefaces the recognitions version of the Clement story. This letter is very interesting for our purposes because we're trying to get at what did Judean followers of Jesus believe, what practices did they have, what strategies did they have in engaging with other followers of Jesus that had different views than theirs. And this letter is especially helpful for that. It's obviously a pseudonymous letter. It's a letter pretending to be written by Peter to James. Peter and James are already very much familiar with. They're both figures that are associated with the Jerusalem church, as we discussed. They're among what are sometimes called the pillars of the Jerusalem church, of the earliest Jesus movement. And they're also representatives of Judean types of Christianity, even after the first century. So in this supposed letter from Peter to James, we have Peter talking about his own preachings. Take a look at chapter 1 of the epistle. Knowing, my brother, your eager desire after that which is for the advantage of us all, I beg and beseech you not to communicate to any one of the Gentiles the books of my preachings which I sent to you, nor to any one of our own tribe before trial. So already in the very beginning of this letter, you get a very clear idea of the Judean perspective of this writing. It's actually excluding Gentiles from the ability to pass on the preachings of Peter. The letter then goes on, though, to allude to another key point I wanted you to note. It then goes into some detail on alternate interpretations of Peter. We already know a lot about how early Christians made use of figures from the past. When we looked at Paul in the Acts of Paul and Thecla and Paul in the pastoral epistles, you got a clear idea of how other Christians could try and use the authority of that figure and try and present that figure as though that figure, Paul, would say X, Y, and Z if he were here. And you can have another group of Christians saying, no, if Paul were here, he would say this and have two different opinions. And so the epistle of Peter to James that's in the pseudo-Clementine writings within this novel actually talks about that very issue in regard to Peter. And so Peter is presented as saying that his preachings are important, they can only be passed on by Judeans, and they have to be passed on very carefully, we'll soon see. But he also talks about people who represent Peter in the wrong way. So it's showing us it's part of those battles, those struggles that are going on. The struggles that are going on aren't only patristic writers struggling against alternate takes that Nagamadi authors have or that Gnostic authors have. Remember that heresy and orthodoxy are all in the eye of the beholder. It's also the supposed heretics who are having strategies to combat supposed orthodox interpretations of Peter, of Paul, what have you. And that's what we see here. Take a look at chapter 2 of the epistle of Peter to James, where we have Peter speaking here, talking about alternate interpretations of him. Remember, this is pseudonymous, so it's dealing with situations that are going on long after Peter's around. For some from among the Gentiles have rejected my legal preaching, attaching themselves to certain lawless and trifling preaching 
of the man who is my enemy. The man who is my enemy. Soon we'll see the most likely candidate for this enemy in the author's view, remember it's a pseudonymous author, is Paul. But also people associated with Paul. People like Marcion that we're going to learn a whole lot more about soon seem to be in the mind of this author when they think of the ultimate enemies of Peter they think of figures like Paul and Marcion. Gentile forms of Christianity are the main thing here that are seen as the source of difficulties. So Paul seems to be here characterized as my enemy. It's not explicitly stated but we'll get into that soon with some other materials. And these things some have attempted while I am still alive to transform my words by certain various interpretations in order to the dissolution of the law. So the author of the Pseudo-Clementines in this section of this letter is a follower of the Jewish Torah, a Judean follower of the Jewish Torah is in mind here, who's upset about followers of Jesus who are saying you do not need to follow the law. He's thinking of people like Paul. And it goes on, as though I also myself were of such a mind. So some people present Peter as though Peter was okay with not following the law, not following the Torah. Just a brief mention of something here, not that this is necessarily in the mind of this author, but to give you an illustration of what type of thing could be there. The Acts of the Apostles, if you read through it, has two main protagonists. has Peter as the protagonist of the first half of Acts, and Paul as the protagonist of the second half of Acts. Speeches are a favorite technique of that author, so that he'll have Peter giving speeches at various points in the narrative. Paul giving speeches at various points in the narrative. It's a way of characterizing Peter and Paul in Acts and of saying what that author, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, thinks about what Peter and Paul were really like. In other words, what that author interprets Peter to be like. Lo and behold, if you look at the speeches, they sound identical. So Luke Acts, the author of Luke Acts, the book of Acts, is an example where Peter is being interpreted in a particular way just shortly after his death and in a way that tries to reconcile him with Paul particularly on the issue of including Gentile. And then so the Acts is portraying, Peter is saying it's okay to not go by the food laws. So that's a sort of portrait, that's a sort of interpretation of Peter that is being combated by this interpretation of Peter. Right in the process of presenting that interpretation of Peter, this author is trying to combat other interpretations quite explicitly, anticipating that other people think of Peter in a different way and try and reconcile Peter, so to speak, to Paul's views and include Gentiles in a more open way and perhaps relax the following of Judean laws more readily. Let's continue in this same passage here. So he's talking about the lawless people, the enemies, who present Peter as though he himself was against the law, but did not freely proclaim the law, which God forbid. For such a thing were to act in opposition to the law of God, which was spoken by Moses and was borne witness to by our Lord in respect of its eternal continuance. For thus he spoke. And here we have what seems to be a quotation of a saying that's also preserved in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's the Matthean sort of Jesus that is being quoted here. The heavens and the earth shall pass away, but one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law. So it's quoting a saying of, attributed to Jesus, that Jesus said, you must follow the law to the T, to the point of not taking a dot of an I or a cross of a T out. So a very Judean Jesus that's followed by these Judeans. And this he has said, that all things might come to pass. But these men, 
professing, I know not how, to know my mind, Peter's mind, undertake to explain Peter's words, which they have heard of me, more intelligently than I who spoke them, telling their students that this is my meaning, which indeed I never thought of. But if, while I am still alive, they dare thus to misrepresent me, how much more will those who shall come after me dare to do so? Here, a very Judean interpretation of Peter that objects to forms of Christianity that do not follow the Judean law. Let's move on just to the next section here, chapter 4, where the letter then moves on to what happens as a result of the letter. The idea is Peter wrote this letter to James in Jerusalem, and then James in Jerusalem implements some strategies that will help to preserve the Judean preachings of Peter and stop the misinterpretations by the enemies, namely Pauline styles of interpretation. And so we're again seeing here, at least in the third century, but by the fourth century for sure, um, these Judean followers of Jesus are probably practicing these in their own time. They attribute it to Peter. They're saying here, Peter taught us how to do it. But they had strategies to combat alternate teachings in other groups of Jesus followers. In the same way that the patristic authors have strategies on combating alternate takes of Gnostics, alternate takes of the Ebionites. So we're seeing the battle from different sides by looking at the pseudo-Clementine literature. We're seeing that there's the same sort of thing is going on on all sides in terms of strategies to combat others. So then you have the story of James giving the outline of uh, an initiation ritual. It involves you, first of all, being Judean. You need to be Judean to receive the preachings of Peter. Well, it involves, a, first of all, at least six years of training before you're considered in a position to actually possess and carefully keep the preachings of Peter. Here's a, a bit of the oath uh, that we have in this document. In Chapter 4, Section 2 and following. And let him, the person who's a Judean, who's been circumcised, and who is being trained for six years, before he can take on the writings, let him say, I take to witness heaven, earth, water, in which all things are comprehended, and in addition to all these, that air also which pervades all things, and without which I cannot breathe, that I shall always be obedient to him who gives me the books of the preachings and those same books which he may give me. I shall not communicate to anyone in any way, either by writing them, or giving them in writing, or giving them to a writer, either myself or by another, or through any other initiation or trick or method, or by keeping them carelessly, or placing them before anyone, or granting him permission to see them, or in any way or manner whatsoever communicating them to another, unless I shall ascertain one to be worthy, as I myself have been judged, or even more so, and that after a probation of not less than six years, but to one who is religious and good, chosen to teach, as I have received them, so I will commit them, doing these things also according to the will of my bishop. The language of bishop you expect from what later wins out in the battle, right? Some of those patristic authors think that they're on the right side, as this author does, and they'll talk about the bishop being the source of authority and that you need to uh, get approval of bishop. Well, here we have the other side saying having bishops, so having obviously bishops who agree with their Judean teaching, not with the teaching that uh, the opponents of the Ebionites or the opponents of other Judean 
followers of Jesus, not in line with their bishops' views. They're, they have their own bishops. They have their own leaders. So that gives us an important glimpse into the sort of battles that are going on in the ground on both sides of the battle. From the patristic authors, we get a very clear sense of the Ebionites being condemned as Judean followers of Jesus who follow the law to the T, spoken negatively of by the different authors we looked at for the Ebionites. But here we have the Ebionites talking negatively about people who do not follow the Jewish Torah to the T, and also having their own bishops and their own strategies on how to preserve their teaching over against the teaching of others. Let's look at homily 17 here. Homily 17 is at the point in the narrative at which Clement has been accompanying Peter in the novel. Clement is now going to be a witness to certain debates that take place between Peter and Simon Magus. Simon Magus is a favorite figure for many authors. He's a favorite figure as the arch heretic. And it doesn't matter whether you're a church father who thinks other people are heretics and you say they're like Simon Magus, or if you're someone Judean follower of Jesus who's considered a heretic by Tertullian or someone and yet you too will call the arch heretic Simon Magus. What's clear is he existed in the minds of many authors and continued to exist as the arch heretic, as the ultimate representative of the views you don't like, including these Judeans who are critiquing Paul using the cipher of Simon Magus perhaps simultaneously critiquing Marcionite Christianity, which is heavily Pauline. We're going to get into Marcion soon. In other words, it's really a debate between Peter and Paul. You're really reliving, so to speak, a retelling and a different perspective on that run-in that Paul had with Peter in Antioch back in Galatians. Let me just quickly mention something about Galatians that will help you understand and interpret homily 17. In Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul, back in the mid-first century in the 50s, was defending his good news, his message, over against what he considered to be another gospel. And the way he defended it in the first two chapters was to say, my gospel comes directly from God. It's the best and only gospel. My gospel is not man's gospel. And then Paul goes on to refer to the fact that Jesus appeared to him and gave him this message, namely the message to go to the Gentiles. And so that was part of his defense of his gospel over against the other gospel. The other gospel we know is about Judeans who are saying it's required to be circumcised in order to belong to the Jesus movement. And so in, in the process of defending his gospel, he refers to his vision of Jesus that he had. He emphasizes, I got my message directly through a vision of Jesus, and I definitely did not go and talk to any of the followers of Jesus. From our perspective, it would be unusual to say for Paul to be defending his position by saying he didn't talk to any followers of Jesus. But anyhow, he emphasized that he didn't go to James, he didn't go to Peter, he didn't go to Jerusalem. Remember that independence of Jerusalem argument? So that was all Paul's perspective on things. A vision directly from God, the source of his message, and his message is the only right message. Not from the leaders of the Jerusalem church, not from Peter, not from James. And now we're going to see what may have existed as an alternate take even in earlier centuries, but centuries later, an author representing a different interpretation of Paul's supposed vision, of Paul's supposed direct revelation from God, trying to debunk Paul by questioning that whole basis on which he himself based his view. 
in Galatians. He bases his legitimacy of his whole message on that vision of Jesus. So here's what we have. Let's take a look at some of this material now. Now that we've got a bit of background in a way that's standing behind Peter and fighting against Paul and saying that Paul's message is illegitimate, precisely what Paul was worried about other people thinking back in Galatians, and that Peter's position is the only legitimate take on things. And we just had that letter that also underlined that. And so here we have Simon, first of all, talking, chapter 13. You professed that you had well understood the doctrines and deeds of your teacher, Jesus, because you saw them before you with your own eyes and heard them with your own ears, and that it is not possible for any other to have anything similar by vision or apparition. So it's an issue of debates of where does truth come, who has the truth, and the question of knowing Jesus personally and having, having been taught by him, Peter, versus Simon, vision. Vision as a source of truth or direct teaching from Jesus as a source of truth. And this document siding with Peter on this and saying that it's only through direct teaching from Jesus that we get truth. And that Peter is therefore the source of truth. So that's Simon's first statement is to say, well, who's to say that getting direct teaching from Jesus is more legitimate than getting a vision? Perhaps Paul might say that when he was alive back in the 50s. But anyways, we have here Simon Magus presented as saying that uh, when this author's uh, relating this story. Look on to Peter's next statement here in chapter 14. Still the debate that's going on in the novel. Finally, you allege that on this account, you knew more satisfactorily the doctrines of Jesus than I do, because you heard his words through an apparition. Simon Magus equals Paul is being presented as saying that his is more legitimate because it is from a vision. Remember that Paul presented himself in the 50s CE as not having to go and meet any of the followers of Jesus, any of the disciples. It is, he did say that it was through a vision that he got his legitimacy, and only from directly from God. So this is why this fits well with understanding Simon Magus as Paul. Peter then in that section goes on to say it's an evil demon or a deceptive spirit who gave you the vision. And that is the general line of Peter's argument throughout the rest of this dialogue, isn't it? Basically, it's an issue of truth. Same sort of debate we have between the patristic writers and what they consider heretical groups is the debate about truth. We have the truth and you don't. And here's why our truth is truth. And here's why your supposed truth is illegitimate. And that's what we have going on here. The same sort of strategies are going on in both sides of the battle. The people that are categorized as heretics are sometimes using the same strategies in reverse. Part of the argument that, uh, you, that uh, the vision of Simon Magus, the vision of Paul, is illegitimate is that you can't see God. And so biblical material from the Torah are used in this argument to say that seeing God is not possible. And therefore, Simon Magus equals Paul could not have seen God, could not have received a revelation from God is part of the argument. So that's chapter 16 that you see that coming to the to the fore. Let me just read the final section here, chapter 19, to conclude this discussion. Chapter 19 is Peter's final sort of section on this whole debate. Peter says this, And if you, Simon Magus, remember it's a cipher for Paul, if you, Paul, if you, Simon Magus, will say, It is possible, then I ask, Why did our teacher abide and discourse a whole year to those who were alive? 
And how are we to believe your word, Paul, when you tell us that he appeared to you? And how did he appear to you when you entertain opinions contrary to his teaching? But if you were seen and taught by him and became his apostle for a single hour, proclaim his utterances, interpret his sayings, love his apostles, contend not with me, Peter, who accompanied with him. For in direct opposition to me, Peter, who am a firm rock, the foundation of the church, you now stand. This is another allusion to the Gospel of Matthew. From our discussion of the Ebionites, we already had quite a few patristic authors pointing to Matthew as the favorite gospel of Judean followers of Jesus who followed the law, precisely because the Jesus in Matthew follows the law to the T and says everyone should. And here we're having more allusions, as we had earlier in the pseudo-Clementine writings, to Matthean material, namely the story of Peter talking to Jesus and at the acknowledgement where Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah in the narrative of Matthew, Jesus then goes on to say, you are the rock upon which the church will be built. But here, Judean followers of Jesus saying that Peter is the ultimate authority who are contending with the type of Christians that end up canonizing Paul's letters. In other words, what ultimately becomes defined as orthodoxy. So Peter here as an authority for the Judean side. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Kaveh, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license.